Hey everyone, it's Megan, the Family Finance Mom, adding a new weekly segment to Finance Explained. Now, in addition to the weekly deep dive episodes each season, I'll be posting Q&A replays two times a week. I host these sessions live on Mondays and Wednesdays at 9 a.m. over on Instagram. If you'd like to have your questions answered, look for the question box in my stories ahead of each session or join live and ask in the comments. But to make it easier for you to listen to the replays on the go, in segments, and at your convenience, you can now listen here. But first, this week's episode is brought to you by the Family Finance Mom Economic Workshop Series. So many of you have asked for more formal education on specific topics, and now you have it. The Economic Workshops are a series of six hour-long sessions each on a specific economic topic to grow and deepen your financial and economic literacy and give you the confidence to make solid financial decisions for yourself, your family, and your future. If you've ever wondered, is this a good time to buy a house, change jobs, save more, invest more, start a new business? Should I be taking a big risk right now or maybe I need to be more cautious? Understanding how the economy works as well as the state of the current economic environment as a whole, can help you form more informed decisions on all of the above. The Economic Workshop Series will arm you with all the economic know-how you need to do exactly that. The first workshop, What is a Recession?, covered the economic cycle and how recessions are a natural part, and fortunately the shortest part, of the cycle. We talked about leading and lagging economic indicators, past recessions, and more. The full replay is available now. The second workshop, What is Economics? Scarcity, the Free Market, Supply and Demand, will be live February 23rd and is open for enrollment now. You can participate in the live workshop or catch the replay at your convenience. Each workshop includes 45 minutes of instruction followed by your questions. Choose the topics you want to learn more about or save money and get all six sessions with the Economic Workshop Bundle, including immediate access to January's workshop replay on recessions. Visit FamilyFinanceMom.com or the link in today's show notes for details. Hey, Family Finance Moms, let's try this again. For some reason, um, it was disconnecting from Wi-Fi and having connection issues before. Um, I'm Megan, also known as the Family Finance Mom. For those who are new, welcome. Twice a week on Monday and Wednesday at 9 a.m., I hop on here live for about half an hour to take as many of your personal finance, market, and economic questions as I can. I do start with the questions that people submitted in the box last night, but as always, if you're here watching live, you are welcome to comment and ask questions as we go along. Um, I apologize that I couldn't get to all the questions on Monday, so always feel free to resubmit questions if I don't get to them. I also don't mind repeats um, because I know not everybody gets every session. The other thing to know as well is that these replays are posted here on my video feed as well as on my podcast, Finance Explained, and there's always in the description the list of the different topics that we cover, so feel free to check those out as well. So with that all being said, let me go ahead and get started with the questions from last night. First question, updates on the debt ceiling and what getting closer means for us as consumers and citizens. So first, let me kind of define some of these terms. So the debt ceiling 
is something that is put in place by Congress. Because remember here in the US, Congress has what is known as the power of the purse. They are the ones who control and can authorize spending. So way back when, you know, 100 plus years ago, any time that the Treasury, who think of the Treasury kind of as like the nation's CFO, they're the ones who have the checkbook that are actually writing the checks to pay the bills that the government has promised to pay. Um, it used to be that any time spending had to be authorized, Congress would have to approve each individual expenditure. That obviously, or anytime they needed to borrow money in order to pay the bills, Congress would have to authorize each individual borrowing. And you can imagine that that could make the running the everyday business of the government tedious eventually. So Congress put in place this concept known as the debt ceiling. The debt ceiling essentially is Congress pre-authorizing the Treasury Department to borrow in order to make good on the debts and payments that the federal government needs to make up to a certain limit. And so you could kind of think of it as like your credit card, um, how you have an author, like you have a limit on what you can spend on your credit card. And that's typically going to be based on, you know, what is your income level? What does your credit history look like? Things like that. And the, the credit card company will say, you can use this as much as you want up to this limit. Think of the debt ceiling, very similar to that. So the debt ceiling issue that continues to come up, and it's come up more and more frequently in recent years because the government is spending more and more in, a, in the deficit. I mean, and a deficit is the annual difference between what the government brings in revenue and what they spend. And so in recent years, particularly through the pandemic period, um, and continuing under the Biden administration, we have had significant deficit spending, meaning the federal government is spending far more each year than it brings in, and its primary source of revenue is tax revenues. So each year that they bring in less than what they spend, they have to go out and borrow that money, which increases the national debt and pushes us closer and closer to that debt ceiling. And so that's why this kind of debate of, are we gonna raise the debt ceiling? How much are we gonna raise the debt ceiling by? And what has to happen in order to get that debt ceiling raised? That's why these negotiations seem so much more frequent right now. It's because of the increase in deficit spending. It's because of the growth in the national debt being accelerated. And we're constantly bumping up on the ceiling that Congress is setting. Um, now, the debate around the debt ceiling, there is one side of the argument that says, well, Congress has already authorized these expenditures. The Treasury Department is just trying to pay the bills that Congress already approved. Um, and so, therefore, you should increase the debt ceiling because you already authorized this spending and we need to make good on what we've already authorized. So that's kind of one camp. The other camp says, well, Congress authorizes things all the time based on expectations of what they're going to cost or how they're going to impact federal spending over time. And there is no real check and balance as to if that ever plays out accurately. So let me kind of give an example of that. Every time Congress passes a spending bill, whether it is the annual kind of omnibus budget bill, which is sort of like the big overarching, here's how we're going to run the federal government and how all the different agencies get funded, or whether it is like one-off packages um, 
like the infrastructure bill that was passed, and I'm not going to remember exactly when, within like the last two years. Whenever there is a spending bill, the CBO, which is a nonpartisan government agency, the Congressional Budget Office, does a very big analysis on how much they think this bill is going to actually cost and how it's going to play out over time. What is the forecast over the next 10 years? What is the impact on the government budget over the next 10 years, both in terms of revenues, if there's you know changes in tax policy and things like that associated with it, as well as changes in expenditures. And part of that tax revenue expectation, right, is based on estimates of how this bill is going to impact the economy. So they're making a huge number of assumptions around how this is all going to play out. Many bills are touted as being stimulative, meaning we're going to spend all this money today or in the next two to three years. And yes, it's going to be deficit spending now, but 10 years from now, the economy is going to be this much bigger and therefore it's going to generate this much more in tax revenue. Many times that is not exactly how it plays out. Things end up having cost overruns and costing more. Things don't ever materialize in terms of, you know, if they project that some new tax is going to generate uh, a bunch of tax revenue, um, maybe they miss something like a spillover effect that actually results in like no additional tax revenue being um, produced. And so the other side of the argument is that having a debt ceiling is a check on that congressional spending power on that, okay, well, you said it was gonna cost this and that it was gonna produce this much revenue, but in actuality, it's way in the hole and none of that is materializing. And so the other side of the argument is the debt ceiling gives us this opportunity to look at the big picture and say, hey, our debt is now bigger than, you know, a huge number of is, you know, in terms of debt to GDP and where we're at relative to the rest of the world and hey, our business partners around the world are getting concerned about relying on the US dollar because of the state of our fiscal health financially. Um, maybe we need to address some of these issues. Maybe if we're going to increase and authorize more debt to be issued, we also need to address the fact that we are spending far more than we make every single year and get that, you know, get our financial house in order. That's kind of the other side of the argument. So that, I hope, kind of frames the debt ceiling debate and also why it keeps coming up over and over again. So where are we at in this current scenario? Well, under the current scenario, the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, earlier this year came out and said, hey, based on all our projections, we are bumping up against the debt ceiling. The Treasury Department is now taking what they call extraordinary measures, which are essentially kind of like accounting maneuvers where they can shuffle things around, they can, you know, hold off on making certain payments that don't have to be made right now in order to give the U.S. as long a runway as possible before they hit up against the point where, like, we actually have to issue more debt or we're not, you know, we're going to default on something, for example. Um, and so what she has said is that by taking those measures, the U.S. has until sometime in the summer time horizon, um, call it sometime between June and September, before we will meet that debt ceiling limit. So that should have given Congress a timeline to start negotiating to make something happen before we get really close to that deadline. Because the closer we get to that deadline, the more nervous and skittish markets are going to be. 
Nobody, and when I say nobody, I mean no one, not a Republican, not a Democrat, the Federal Reserve, um, foreign governments, no one in the world wants to see the U.S. default on their debt. So many countries around the world hold U.S. dollars, hold U.S. Treasury bonds. You as individuals, if you have a pension, if you have a retirement fund, um, if you have a money market account, if you have deposits in a savings account at a bank, you have risk exposure to U.S. treasuries. So nobody in the world wants to see the U.S. do anything that would result in a default on any type of um, U.S. debt. So it is in everyone's best interest for Congress to be grownups and discuss a solution that is best for the country. And a solution that is best for the country is likely, yes, we need to authorize an increase in the limit in the near term, but it needs to be one, reasonable, and it needs to come with stipulations that we're going to rein in the spending situation so that we don't keep having this happen over and over and over again. What we have seen so far is the Speaker of the House, McCarthy, has put forward kind of his initial um, offering, which basically says kind of something to that effect, which is that like, we're willing to authorize an increase in the debt ceiling, but not without some discussion around spending and some concessions on spending. So that's sort of like the opening offer. Um, and then you have the Biden administration who they are going to negotiate with taking kind of a firm stand in the other camp, which is um, we just need to increase the debt ceiling and we're not willing to consider any type of negotiation around spending. So those are sort of the opening positions. Um, and presumably we're going to negotiate and end up somewhere in the middle, particularly given that we have a split Congress. Um, just as a reminder, the House is controlled by Republicans. Uh, the Senate has a very, very narrow Democrat majority. Um, but we have seen in more kind of recent contentious debates, there are some more moderate Democrats who will vote with Republicans, particularly when it comes to financial and fiscal issues. So that I think is all important to understand kind of in the background of these negotiations and discussions. Um, so I hope that that kind of answers the question. Right now, I think we're in a situation where we're still very, very far apart as we approach June. So I would expect to see the rhetoric and the negotiations and the debate and the press around all this pick up again, particularly in May and as we head into June, because nobody wants to get to kind of the 11th hour. Um, unfortunately, that seems to be kind of where these discussions always end up. And it puts a lot of strain and volatility. When I say volatility, I mean up and down movement in the market. Um, when we allow that kind of timeline to get down to the 11th hour. So if this is something that is concerning to you, I would highly, highly encourage you to reach out to your representatives in Congress, your senators and your House representatives and express your concern and express the fact that like people need to act like grownups and not put, you know, retirement funds, U.S. markets, uh, the operation of our banking system and everything else at risk solely because you can't get in a room and have like a conversation that is rational and makes economic sense and pr promotes a stable market environment for the U.S. economy. Um, so anyway, didn't mean to kind of get up on a soapbox there, but that is kind of 
why this is playing out, why we keep having all of these negotiations and kind of where the debate lies. So let me know if anybody has further questions kind of around all of that, uh, but that's kind of my two cents on it. Um, okay, next question. My employer introduced a Roth 401k after previously only offering a traditional 401k, which is better or both? So the biggest thing to understand between the distinction between a traditional um, retirement account and a Roth retirement account, and this is true whether you're talking about a 401k or an IRA, is the tax treatment. Do you want to have a tax benefit, a tax savings today, or do you want a tax savings in the future? And here's kind of the way to think through that decision. If you invest retirement funds in a traditional account today, and this is whether it's traditional 401k or an IRA, you contribute pre-tax dollars today, which reduces your taxable income in the current year. So if you have a significant amount of income and feel as though you're paying very high taxes today, you may be more interested in getting a tax savings now. So for every dollar you contribute to your traditional retirement account today, you are reducing your taxable income for the current year. And then the tax treatment of those funds in the future is all of the gains that you make, so long as the money stays in the account, are tax deferred until you make withdrawals in retirement. And in retirement, when you take money out of that traditional 401k, it will get taxed at ordinary income rates. All of it gets taxed at that rate, both the contributions and any gains. So that's the way to understand the traditional one. A Roth offering has different tax treatment. A Roth offering gives you no tax benefit today. You make contributions with after-tax income. So there is no deduction on your current income taxes in the current year. So you might say, well, why would anybody be interested in a Roth IRA, a Roth IRA or a Roth 401k? The reason it is appealing to people is because you never pay taxes again. You don't pay any taxes on the gains. And in retirement, when you make withdrawals from that account, it is completely tax-free. So you only are paying taxes on your income that you're earning today, which you then make your contributions from. The gains accumulate on a tax-free basis so long as you don't withdraw those funds until retirement. So if you are sitting looking at your tax picture right now, and you're looking at kind of everything we just talked about with regards to federal spending and the national debt, that all kind of adds up to, for most sane people, the fact that we only get out of this mess with higher tax rates in the future. So there are many people who are saying, I'd rather pay a known tax rate today than most people expect that all tax rates are going to be higher in the future. And a Roth 401k isolates you from that. So it's um, kind of another form of investment diversification. You're investing kind of your tax obligation in the future. So there is no necessarily right or wrong answer. It's more of what is your perspective on your current taxes and where you think your future taxes will be, um, and then make your decision based on that. There's also nothing that says you have to do all or nothing. To your point, you can put some in both. You could diversify your portfolio and your future tax obligations by investing across both. But understand that the annual contribution limit applies on an aggregate basis. So you can't max out the Roth 401k and max out the traditional 401k 
your combined contributions can't exceed that kind of annual individual contribution limit. So I hope that that helps. And like I said, there's no right or wrong answer. More people are leaning towards Roth account offerings because of kind of their outlook on where taxes are headed in the future. But that can be different for anyone, for you know every individual person, depending on your personal tax situation today and where you think it will be in the future as well. So I hope that that helps. Uh, okay, next question. What is a cash sweep? So a cash sweep is a feature on various accounts. It could be a checking account. It could be usually more of like a checking account, especially like a business checking account, um, where a bank will offer that they'll take a look at kind of your uh, run rate on your account balance. And they will, at the end of every day, sweep whatever cash balances that, you know, you're not going to need immediately in the next 24 or 48 hours. And they will invest it for you overnight so that you can earn some small um, interest rate on it. Although now that interest rates are higher, it's bigger and potentially more meaningful. But that tends to be the context of a cash sweep. Um, the thing to understand about a cash sweep is that it can potentially expose you to investment risk and volatility. It's usually short-term in nature, so there should be less of that. But particularly in the current environment where like, we're seeing headlines again this week that there may be another bank failure, um, you know, sometimes those accounts can either remove some of your FDIC protection or the part of it that gets swept out may not be FDIC protected. And so in the current environment where that is a more um, concern that has become more of a reality, it's something you maybe want to be more in tune with. And like I said, this tends to be on kind of larger, like more like business type accounts. Um, but they can also be like in brokerage accounts or um, you know, if you're a larger net worth individual and some of your like checking accounts as well. Um, but that tends to be kind of the context of a cash sweep. Okay, next question. What is the difference between a broker and a financial advisor? So a broker is somebody who works for a broker dealer, which is a um, financial institution that can engage in the market that can execute trades, that I can call up and say, hey, I want to buy Google stock. They can participate in, reach out to the marketplace and execute that trade. It literally used to be that. Like it used to be like I pick up the phone and make a phone call and I talk to like a trader on the desk at the broker dealer and they're executing the trade. Many, much of that now is all obviously electronic and digital and online. Um, there are still some asset classes that trade old school, like where you're picking up a phone and executing that way. Um, but that is typically what a broker is. They're more of like the person that is like your agent and executing your transaction, kind of like akin to like a real estate broker, right? Like they're your representative in the market that helps you make a transaction happen. A financial advisor is a rep, typically you want their, if they're using that term, they have to be a registered investment advisor. That means they are registered with the SEC. They are authorized to be your fiduciary, meaning they have to act in your best interest. Um, they will make recommendations on 
how you should, you know, set up your financial holdings in order to like maximize and achieve your investment goals and objectives. Um, but kind of like if you, you know, how I always make this comparison of like all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. Many financial advisors may also be brokers or may be affiliated with a broker dealer, um, but not all broker dealers are financial advisors, if that makes sense. Um, so that tends to kind of be the distinction. Typically, if you are working with a financial advisor, they will be affiliated with or have access to or work in concert with a broker. Um, and so anyway, I hope that that helps and kind of gives some clarity on the distinction. It can be confusing because there's all this kind of financial jargon around, you know, there's financial planners, there's financial advisors, there's tax advisors, there's estate planners, there's, and all these people are kind of like a team that works together. And many kind of financial advisors or financial planning offices will actually have all these people on a team or have a network of people they will refer you to because in various capacities of financial planning, you need all of those kind of representatives, you know, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. So I hope that that helps. Um, one thing that I wanted, or a couple things I wanted to touch on, that, that was the extent of the questions submitted last night. One of the questions that was submitted on Monday that I didn't get to asked was something along the lines of, what do you think is important economic knowledge for graduating high school seniors to understand? And I think this is a super, super important question because, and it has always been important, but it is more so today in the current environment where interest rates are really high, where college tuition is higher than ever, and you have 17 and 18 year olds making financial decisions with commas in them that literally can change the financial trajectory of their entire life. And I know that sounds dire, but it is kind of the reality of the current situation. We no longer live in a world where college decisions can be like, oh, I'm going to go here to like figure myself out. You don't spend fifty dollars to $100,000 a year to figure yourself out. If you're still figuring yourself out, you're probably better off like staying home, taking some courses at a community college, going and getting an internship somewhere to figure out like, is this something I really want to do? That's a far more cost-effective way to do that than going off to college for that college experience that everybody thinks that they need to have. So from that perspective, what I would say is, High school seniors should have some idea, and it doesn't mean that it can change, and it doesn't mean that you not might not graduate and not use your degree and go off into some other field, but you want to have some idea of like, what am I good at? What am I passionate about? Where do my interests lie? What do I think that I want to do in five or 10 years? And am I setting myself on a path that is in alignment with that perspective? The other thing that as you're thinking through that path is what is the real cost of this? And not just, oh, well, I have a college fund and my parents are going to pay for it, or this should matter to everyone. Like, unless you are a bajillionaire um, where you can write multi-hundred thousand dollar checks and it doesn't keep you up at night, um, most kids their parents and or themselves are paying for college at significant financial hardship and impact to their family. 
So you need to think about that like an investment decision. Where are you going to college? What is the cost of that college tuition? What is the degree path that you are on? What are the job opportunities associated with that degree path? What is the starting income associated with those job opportunities? Are you going to need a graduate degree over and above your bachelor's degree in order to gain entry into that industry or workplace or whatever? To understand kind of like what the potential all-in cost is of your education before you even start working. Um, when you graduate, what is your student loan burden going to look like? Is the income that you're going to potentially generate in that entry-level job going to be enough to allow you to live and make progress on that student loan debt? Um, all of this is math that I think far too few people look at and think about when making these decisions. And I, I don't mean to pick on teachers because I come from a family of teachers. My mother-in-law is a retired teacher. My mom was a retired teacher and actually went back to teaching last year. Um, so I have nothing against teachers, but I use this example because I saw it happen so frequently when I was at Notre Dame. Notre Dame is a private university. It comes with private school tuition. They are very good because they have a sizable endowment about giving significant merit aid, not just financial aid. So there are many schools that will only offer financial aid, meaning you get aid based on your demonstrated financial need. And as you might imagine, the math associated with that doesn't always match up to like reality. Like um, it's not, only, you know, you get a full ride if you are like destitute and living in poverty, but just because you are middle class does not mean your parents can foot what at the time was like a $40,000 tuition and room and board bill. And now I think is closer to 80. Most families who are middle class cannot write a check for $80,000 a year for their kid to go to school. That is factual reality. Um, but I digress. So there were kids I went to school with that wanted to be teachers and Notre Dame with its private school tuition does not offer a bachelor's degree in education. So why are you choosing a school that costs what it costs when your career path, A, is not going to earn you a significant level of income, and B, the school does not even offer a degree in the career path you are choosing to pursue? Now, there are alternative certification processes that you can go through if you don't have an, a degree in education to become a teacher. But just from a financial perspective and from a like common sense perspective, if you wanted to be a teacher, why wouldn't you go somewhere that offered a degree in education that was set up so that you could do your student teaching, that was set up so that maybe you could get your fifth year master certification in four years and graduate? that, oh, by the way, you can go to most any state school in the country at significant lower public tuition costs um, and graduate with. That's what I mean by kind of thinking through, like understanding like where you wanna go, what is the most cost-effective way to get there? Um, I think that that's really important to think about and consider and understand. So if you ask me what the most important kind of economic thing for high school seniors to understand, that would be it. Um, that doesn't mean that you have to know without a doubt, with 100% certainty, exactly what you want to do. However, especially if you are from 
a middle income or lower middle lower income family where tuition is going to be a significant financial hardship either to you and or your parents, you need to be very thoughtful about these decisions because you are putting yourself in a position potentially where you are going to hamstring yourself financially for the rest of your adult life. It's going to impact things like your decision to get married, your decision to have a family, your decision to, or your ability to be able to do those things on solid economic financial footing, your ability to like buy a house, all of those things. It's going to impact your ability to retire someday if you're having to choose between paying off insurmountable student loan debts and contributing to your retirement. Um, so I don't mean to be like draconian in that conversation, but I think it's incredibly important for families to understand and talk about. Um, one of the things too, when I'm done here is I will link up in my stories, a post I worked with, um, I had a teacher who followed me, reach out to me, who was kind of like a career counselor at a high school. And she collected questions from her students around kind of all of this. And then I put together a post and a bunch of resources to answer it. So when I'm done here, I will link that up in my stories. And hopefully if your family is in the throes of kind of that decision-making, it can be a helpful resource for you in making those decisions. Um, somebody is asking a follow-up question to the question I mentioned before. Can there be a conflict of interest if a financial advisor is also a broker? Um, Historically, there were a lot of conflicts of interest in kind of the financial advisory world. Now, and the reason for that was that there were many mutual funds who the way that financial advisors got paid was by recommending funds that paid them a front end load fee. And so they would recommend funds based on what paid them the most as opposed to what might be the best fit for you. And oh, by the way, if you're paying load fees up front, it's diminishing the amount of money that you're investing, which has long-term compounding effects for you. More over the last, call it 10 years, financial advisory has moved much more to a fee-for-service approach. So they should be very upfront and transparent with you about what their fees are. Standard would be, we're going to charge you somewhere around 1% a year on your assets under management. So if you have a million dollars that they're overseeing across various accounts and investment vehicles, they're going to charge you 1% a year. That aligns your interest because they are motivated to grow your investments because the more they grow it, the more they earn in fee revenue. Um, so that is kind of where the industry is headed. I would say 1% is kind of the norm. If you have significant asset under management, that percentage starts to shrink. Um, in terms of the conflict of interest, they should disclose any conflicts of interest to you. If they are a registered investment advisor, that is required. Uh, there are still things like flow and... Um, payment for order flow and things like that that exist kind of behind the scenes. But in those situations, you're kind of talking about needing volume. So like millions and millions of transactions. And then they're, you know, scraping pennies or fractions of a penny off of those transactions. Um, so the conflict of interest, while can still exist to some extent, it's not the same conflict of interest where they're like, 
this index fund is better for you, but I'm going to put you in this actively managed mutual fund that has a really high fee because they pay me 5%. Um, so that conflict of interest is significantly diminished. Uh, so I hope that that helps a little bit. Um, okay. I'm going to go ahead and cut it off here. A couple things to just as a reminder that we're watching this week, Q1 earnings season, we're in the thick of it. Um, through the end of last week, roughly one in five companies in the S&P 500 had reported. So we're early in it. This week is a big week and next week is a big week where more and more companies are reporting. In aggregate, what we're seeing so far in kind of this early part of the earnings season is that Q1 earnings, while I think it's something like 75% of companies are beating earnings and that might sound like a good thing, but you have to remember is that companies give guidance. Companies guide investors to, hey, here's what we expect to make this quarter. You Most companies give guidance that they think they can meet or exceed. So when you have significant numbers of companies not meeting or beating earnings, that's actually not a good thing. Um, and the other thing too, is that we know that guidance has evolved over the first quarter. So where expectations were kind of call it in December for what Q1 earnings are going to be, we're falling short of that. Earnings are down over 6% based on companies that have reported so far um, versus the prior quarter. That is the biggest decline since kind of the height of the pandemic. We expected earnings to be down in Q1 and Q2. That was the expectation. They're down worse. And the expectations for Q2 um, are down more than before. And the expectations for this year are essentially now basically flat. Um, so very anemic growth. Uh, the trajectory kind of of how long they may take to recover, like it's everything's just kind of steepening and getting a little bit worse is kind of what I would say. Because of that, the market has kind of been somewhat in this holding pattern, like it's not sell, you're seeing certain names sell off depending on like kind of where their earnings come out. So there's individual volatility in specific names. But what we are seeing is we're seeing those valuation ratios so the multiple that we put on earnings are creeping back towards kind of long-term averages and even above long-term averages for two reasons. One, the market has kind of traded up in recent weeks at the same time that earnings are getting worse. And so those valuation ratios are widening again, even though interest rates remain relatively high. Um, so anyway, that's kind of where we're at with Q1 earnings. Why do we care about Q1? Like, why do we care about earnings? Well, one, earnings are the most correlated um, variable with stock market performance. So if earnings are down, the market as a whole is likely over time going to be down as well. You need earnings. Earnings growth is what drives the stock market. So if you're invested in the stock market, if you have retirement savings, you care about what's happening to corporate earnings. Because of that, when earnings are under pressure, how are businesses going to respond? When earnings are under pressure, businesses respond by cutting costs. And the way many businesses cut costs, especially service businesses, what's their biggest cost? Labor. And so you're seeing with Q1 earnings and Q1 earnings coming, more and more layoff announcements coming out. We're hearing companies that have already had big layoff announcements, companies like Disney, um, we're seeing more retailers. We've seen retailers announce that they're filing for bankruptcy, that they're closing stores, 
that they're laying off more people. Um, and so you're starting to see kind of that shaky, the employer, the labor market get a little more shaky. We're seeing layoffs expand beyond just tech. They're starting to spill out into financial services. We're seeing companies like Ernst & Young and consulting firms announce big layoffs. We're hearing retailers announce big layoffs. And so the spillover impact is, is growing, is kind of what I would say. And if you look back historically, employment always gets to these like, like we get to all time historic low unemployment rates right as we head into a recession. And the acceleration in unemployment is very quick. The spike happens, you know, in a very short time horizon. It's not sort of like this gradual change. And we've already started to see that uptick. Um, so just something to be aware of and something we're, you know, obviously watching. Along those same lines, on Thursday, we get, which is tomorrow, we get Q1 GDP for 2023. And then on Friday, we will get um, March numbers for personal consumption, which is essentially consumer spending, as well as what's going on with disposable income, which is what gives consumers money in order to spend. And then as part of that announcement is also the PCE price index, which is the Fed's preferred measure of inflation. So those are kind of the three things that I'm watching and paying attention to this week. Um, earnings, how earnings are progressing and what's going on with that. And I'll share in my stories kind of a picture of in aggregate where we were through the end of last week with about 20% of companies reporting. Um, and I'll keep sharing what that picture looks like and how it evolves over the next two weeks as more earnings come out. We'll also get GDP numbers tomorrow, and then we'll get kind of consumer spending and income and inflation numbers on Friday. So keep an eye out for all of that. I'm going to go ahead and cut it off here now. Hope you guys have a great rest of the week. And as always, look for the replays if you join late or didn't catch the whole thing. Um, and I'll be back next Monday and Wednesday for live Q&A again. Thanks for listening to this Q&A replay. As a reminder, to have your questions answered, be sure to follow me on Instagram at Family Finance Mom and look for the question box in my stories ahead of each live session or join live Q&A at 9 a.m. Eastern every Monday and Wednesday. Any resources mentioned in today's replay can also be found in today's show notes.